Thank you, and good morning. It is really lovely to have the opportunity to stand and to speak uh, to you this day. When we were thinking about the whole series of the Global Gospel from Acts, there were three of us in a room together, and we were trying to divide the passages, and we were trying to think about who would like to speak on which chapter, in which order, and what they might want to talk about when they got there. And I claimed this passage Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul. Because we have been looking at Global Gospel Now, this is week number four. If you've parachuted into it, you need to know where we have come from and where we are going. Today, we are going to be focusing in on this chapter, which is all about how the gospel transforms us or transforms an individual. In this particular case, we are looking at the story of one man, but we are going to try and apply what happens to him as to what should or may happen to us as we become Christians as well. Where does it fit in? That would be a good question to ask. Well, This is where it fits in. Acts opens big. It opens in an exciting way as Jesus ascends from earth back to heaven and then as the Holy Spirit descends and comes from God in heaven to dwell in the hearts of mankind and of his disciples and of the early church. And then we have this picture that is formed of the early church community and how it works together and lives together and worships together. Then we have stories of other individuals who hear this message and who take it on board, different people. Then we get to Saul. And Saul has many chapters in this book of Acts. His is the big story that is conveyed because through him, God does so much More stories of individuals follow, more stories of how the gospel then goes to both the Jewish world and the Gentile world, and eventually how the gospel goes to the whole of the known Roman world at that time. So it is exciting. There is drama in Saul's story. There is hope in Saul's story. There is despair in Saul's story. And it is a story that we need to know. And you might think, well, I know it already. I've been coming to church for a long time now, and this story is a really familiar one. Well, please, don't think that. This story is a fantastic story. And we are going to look at it today, and hopefully we are going to learn from it. We are thinking about how Saul's conversion transformed him, transformed him as an individual, and it did that in all sorts of ways. I want to begin with the transformation of his commitment. Saul was a determined man. 
Whatever else you might want to say about him, Saul was not weak-kneed and Saul was not wet. Saul had an opinion. And Saul was so convinced by his opinion that he was absolutely committed to the fact that that opinion was right and that what he wanted to do was a God-inspired and God-ordained thing. And what he wanted to do was the exact opposite of what we would want him to do. Saul was committed to destroying the Christians, the early Christians from those early chapters in Acts. He had no mercy. He wouldn't just wait for them as they met together on whatever day of the week it was that they met. He would go to their homes and he would pull them out and he would tie them in chains and he would flog them and he would beat them and he would menace them. And he wanted to completely exterminate them. It wasn't that he thought they were okay. He did not. Saul wanted to crush the early church. Saul wanted to absolutely destroy it. He was completely committed to that task. There was not a shadow of doubt in his mind. He was eager, and thus he breathed out threats against them. Last night, I had the privilege of going to hear somebody called Baroness Cox speaking not about Saul's world, but speaking about the world today. Baroness Cox is an advocate for religious freedom and an advocate for releasing people from oppression throughout very difficult areas of the world. She stood and she spoke about the reality of people like Saul in today's world. She talked about how in Sudan, for example, people are still made slaves. She talks about in other countries, people are beaten and stripped, and bruised, and humiliated, because they're not on the right side, because they're not doing what the government of that particular country wants them to do, because they will not agree with the military junta who rule in Burma, for example. And she spoke with passion about what life is like in the real world today. It hasn't changed there are people who are still exactly the same as Saul, just as committed to the other side, just as committed to exterminating all who would seek to love Jesus. And so that was Saul. That was what he was like. But Saul's conversion took a turn. Saul's conversion transformed his conscience. The battle for the heart begins in the head. Let's look at a couple of examples of that. We have just sang what is one of my all-time favorite hymns. 
If I'm ever put on the spot and asked what hymn I would like to sing, it is always Amazing Grace, because I think it is a superb hymn. It was written, as we all know, by John Newton. I don't know how many of us have had the chance to see the film Amazing Grace, and he is in that with Wilberforce. And the story of John Newton is an incredible one. John Newton was just like Saul in so many ways. John Newton was the master of a slave ship. He was in command of how those slaves were treated. And to be honest, he didn't care. All he wanted was the money that he got at the end of each journey that he made. All he wanted was his own reward. And so John Newton took slaves aboard his ship. John Newton sold those slaves. John Newton treated those slaves however he and his men wanted to treat them. Until one day he was caught in a storm, a real storm at sea where his ship could have been lost. And John Newton, like Saul, had had a lot of teaching in his upbringing. He had been brought up in a Catholic family. He had some understanding of who God was. Saul had some understanding of who God was too. And John Newton prayed. In the middle of the storm, John Newton prayed and said, if you are real, get us home. And that was it. It wasn't a magnificent prayer. It wasn't a prayer for salvation. It wasn't a prayer for transformation. It was just a basic, get us home. And it was after he got home that God started to work in his conscience. John, what have you been doing? Why do you live this way? Why do you treat other people as you treat them. And gradually, John Newton was transformed. He began to treat his slaves better. Well, it's a start. He began not to trade so much. It's a second step. He began to think about changing his lifestyle. And eventually, he made a 100% commitment to God. And he eventually became a church leader, a church minister. But his conscience had to be transformed in order for him to do that. And his conscience was transformed because he started to think. And an incident in his life helped him to start to think. So with Saul. More dramatic than most, but there was an incident in Saul's life that got him to think. I think the more extreme the character, possibly the more extreme the measures that God will go to in order to reach into their minds. And on this particular occasion, God did something extraordinary. It, sorry, As Saul was walking with his companions towards Damascus, he had not been 
transformed at all. He had watched Stephen die. He had congratulated himself on the work that he had done in Jerusalem. And he had had time to celebrate and congratulate himself on a job well done and a job about to be done in the next town. 150 miles approximately into his journey, as he neared Damascus, that's how far it is, he saw a bright light and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice. It probably would have taken him a week to do this journey. He had had lots of time to think. But his mind on its own wasn't enough. It needed this miraculous intervention. It needed something incredible to happen. In verses 3 to 6 it says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Jesus didn't seem to issue a huge command. Jesus asked him a question. Jesus appealed to his rational mind, even when he was probably in a state of irrationality, having seen this light and heard this voice and lying on the ground. But Jesus talked to him. Jesus used the mind that he had in order to transform the heart that was inside. I wonder what happened in his conscience over the next couple of days. Do you think he would have thought about his life to date? Do you think he would have thought about Stephen again? He had seen Stephen with the face of an angel die seeking the forgiveness of those who were killing him at that time. He had heard Stephen speak of how the God of history was the God who lived in Christians. I wonder if Saul thought about that, because he had heard it and he had seen it. And I wonder how long the transformation took as it went from his conscience to his heart. I wonder what was going on in him. Whatever went on didn't just transform Saul's conscience, but it ended up transforming the entire community that Saul belonged to. So, we have got Saul. He was this. We have painted a small picture of that already. He was a famous Jew who knew a lot. He had been taught by a more famous Jew who knew a lot more, a guy called Gamaliel. He was determined, and in Galatians it says that he was more advanced in all things Jewish than anybody else his age. 
And he was one who persecuted Christians because he believed that they were heretics, because he believed that they were completely wrong. So this was him. Then we have this incident in his life over here. This incident where he meets with God on the Damascus Road. But we have a third set of people. Yes, tricky. Over here, we have the Christian community. The Christian community who knew all about this, nothing about this, and they lived like this. They were poles apart. How could they get together? How could the Christians start to trust the soul? How could that happen? The way in which it happened was that one man, Ananias, was prepared to stand up for Saul. Ananias was talked to by God himself. And as Ananias was talked to by God, that was read to us too, then he was able to go to Saul, to call Saul brother, and to take Saul back with him in order for Saul to learn and to understand and to begin to grow. And his community, Saul's community, was completely transformed. I do not know what happened to all these people who were with Saul at this point. These friends, these comrades that he had taken with him from Jerusalem towards Damascus, I don't know what happened to them because they're not in here. But what we do know is that this incident took Saul right the way over there. His community was completely transformed. Instead of being opposite and opposed to the Christians, he became a Christian. He was one of them. But it didn't necessarily mean that he had any credibility at all. Later on in the passage, it talks about how Saul wanted to go up to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles who were still there. This now is three years later in Saul's story. We find that out in the book of Galatians as well. But there's a big chunk that's missing here when he just talks in Damascus. But after three years, he was ready to go on up to Jerusalem. The only trouble was the people in Jerusalem didn't know him any better now than the people in Damascus had known him at the point when he became a Christian. So Saul needed others to vouch for him as well. He needed other people who would say, yes, Saul can be trusted. Saul is a credible person. I think one of the things that we do as Christians is we latch on to other people, especially if they are famous, who become Christians too. 
We want to celebrate everything that has gone on in their lives, and so we expose them dramatically to the rest of the population. We invite them to come and speak at harvest suppers or whatever it is that we have got going at the time. And they come and they speak, and weeks later we discover that maybe their life isn't, hasn't been as transformed as we would like it to be. And so we are disturbed and we are put off and we think less of our God because the character we have chosen to represent him hasn't done a particularly good job. Saul could have been in that position, but he wasn't because he took time. He took these three years in order to preach, in order to learn how to communicate God effectively and well, and how to talk about him boldly and appropriately. And so when he eventually got to Jerusalem, and when he was vouched for in Jerusalem, people did believe him. People were ready to take him on board because of Barnabas, because of what Barnabas said about him. It comes on later in the chapter that we read earlier on. Barnabas stood up for him too, and he proved himself by his lifestyle and by his words. And lastly, Saul's conversion transformed his conversation, because the disciples did accept him. Saul preached. He didn't preach timidly. He preached boldly. I really like that. I believe passionately that God chooses individuals with their personalities as they are. I am not quiet. I have never been quiet. And sometimes my boys are embarrassed half to death that I am not quieter. But... God has given me the personality that I have. And I am thankful for it, even when I am wrong. And I am wrong a lot. I am still thankful for who I am. Because I don't believe that God wants us all to fit into one mold. I don't believe that God has a picture in his head of what Christians should be like. I don't believe that he has one personality type that he likes better than any other personality type. I believe that when God calls people, he calls them and uses them with themselves intact as they are. He changes lots in us. He changes our attitudes towards our sin. But he wants to use us as we are. And he used Saul extraordinarily as Saul was. So Saul became just as committed for this group of people, if not more so. 
than he was committed to this group of people and to this way of living before he became a Christian. His transformation was a total transformation in his understanding and in his heart, but in his personality, he was still Saul, and God was able to use him that way. So what about a challenge for us that comes out of this passage? Saul's conversion challenges us, I think, at at least three levels. It challenges our certainties. All of us, I believe, who are sitting here today probably have at least one family member who we could never imagine becoming a Christian. At least one either because they're so vocally opposed to everything that we say about the Christian faith, or because, to be honest, they're just not interested. They couldn't give a monkeys. We know people like that. We can't imagine how God would step into their lives and transform them. But if God could do that for Saul, if God could do that for John Newton... If God could do that for me, then God could transform any of us. God can transform anybody. What needs to happen is that these people need to be stopped in their tracks by an encounter with God. They need to have something to prick their conscience so that they will think about God. And so often, the instrument that God uses to do that is us. He uses our mistakes. He uses our problems. He uses our issues. He uses our words and our hearts and our smiles and our natures. And he uses them to prick people's conscience. I wish... He chose to shine that light more. But he doesn't. He chooses to use us. He chooses to use his church instead. And we need to be certain that we can be used, that we can be his instruments to transform other people's lives. Because that's what Acts is telling us we are. It's telling us that the early church is the vessel to take God's gospel global. It's telling us that the 21st century church is still that vessel. And it's telling us that the church isn't the building. The church is us. The church is the people who are inside that building. It changes our certainties. It changes our convictions. Our convictions about ourselves. Our convictions about the truth. Our convictions about whether God is the same God today as he was then. Do we really live as if we have different convictions. I believe wholeheartedly 
that God loves us all of the time. But it is still incredibly difficult to stand in front of somebody who says, how are you? Without those words, I'm fine, coming out of my mouth. Even when, in all honesty, I'm not fine at all. But I will still say it. Is it because my convictions are that people won't love me as much? Is it because my convictions are that God says we should be fine? Is it because my convictions somehow are in my head or in my heart, but they're not in both at the same time? So I don't allow them to transform who I am. So that I stop my convictions from saying, Linda, just be real. Just be a person of integrity, whatever the cost that is involved in that. Am I convicted enough about scripture that I am prepared to say, I believe this to be true and therefore I can only live this way. And because I believe this to be true, then I have to say to you, I do not agree with your choice. Yesterday, I'll just tell you this because it's embarrassed my boys, because this is the sort of thing where they kind of think she's too loud. I had an hour and three quarters on the telephone to a friend in Wales. The whole of the hour and three quarters was spent talking about something uh, that she would like to do that I did not think was wise. Having looked at it from every possible angle, having been as subtle as I can possibly be, I tried so hard. I really, really tried hard. At the end of an hour and three quarters, she said, well, I'm going to apply for the job anyway. And I just found myself saying, well, I'll pray that you don't get an interview then. (laughs) I tried really hard, but my convictions were that she's wrong. My convictions based on scripture were that she was wrong. And in the end, I could not not say that, even though I tried and tried and tried and tried. I couldn't not say it in the end. And I think sometimes I should have got there quicker. It would have been nicer for the family if I had got there quicker. But do our convictions count? Are we prepared to stand on them? And our courage is similar, really. If our convictions are in place and are true, then it gives us courage to speak out for God. In Philippians 1 verse 20, Paul, whose name was transformed as well as his conscience, conversation, credibility, community, says... For I live in eager expectation and hope that I will never do anything that causes me shame. 
but that I will always be bold for Christ, as I have been in the past, and that my life will always honour Christ, whether I live or die. Amen.